Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right, so this week on the Righteous Remnant Podcast, um, I've got my friend Adam Brust in the house, and we are going to have a conversation. Um, As I've shared before, I've been listening to some deconstruction narratives, which are basically stories that people are telling. And these are generally people who grew up in the church or who lived as, as Christians for quite a while. And then they started to question several things about the faith. Um, a lot of these things are things that they learned when they were growing up in church. Um, but the whole point is they start to feel like these things are not true. And so they really start to investigate and question and this process called deconstruction. And a lot of those people end up leaving the faith. And so what I wanted to do is um, I did an episode on like a broad overview of deconstruction and what I want to do in some subsequent episodes is really zone in on a couple of these bigger reasons, like things that people really have a problem with um, when they actually take a step back and look at it. And so today's episode is going to be a conversation on the issue of Old Testament judgments, okay, of Old Testament judgments. And included in this topic are things like the flood, right? Like knowing the ark and the flood, like, you know, we teach it in Sunday school. You know, it's cute. You got a little boat and the animals and they're going two by two and, you know, but the reality is that's probably the most horrible thing that's ever happened, <laughs> right? Like it's more horrible than the Holocaust. You know, it's more horrible than World War Two. It's pretty much the most terrible thing that's ever happened on the planet. And um, it basically says that God did it, right? God made the decision to do it. And yeah, that rubs some people the wrong way when we actually take a step back and think about that. Um, but there's more than that, right? There's um, the the so-called Canaanite genocide, right? And this is the episode where the Israelites, they come into the land, right? They're being led by Moses and then by Joshua, and Joshua leads them in conquest of the land of Canaan. And um, in particular, they are commanded to kill everyone. So Adam, let me read a couple of verses just so we know what we're talking about here, Okay. So this is Deuteronomy 20, verse 16 to 18. It says this, Only in the cities of these people the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You shall not leave alive anything that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you, in order that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things, which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. Okay, so that's one example. Okay, another real quick one. Um, later on, this is actually in First Samuel. So this is around David's time, the story of David. And um, if you remember, um, Samuel commands Saul um, from the Lord to kill the Amalekites. Right? It says this: Now go attack the Amalekites, totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep camels and donkeys so literally like saul was supposed to kill everyone and everything the animals included and in fact what we see in that story it's kind of interesting because saul doesn't do that he spares um the amalekite king i believe and yeah and this is the thing that really upsets samuel and the lord right and this is one of like the two major sins that saul commits against the lord um that results in in him losing the dynasty, right? I and think then, this is that's the one. This is the one that results in him losing it. He Samuel walks away, and Saul goes to grab his garment, rips the garment, and Samuel says, "The Lord's ripped the kingdom from you this day." That, I think this is right. it. I think that's. I'm pretty sure that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is definitely highlighted as one of the big things. There's another argument to be made. You know. Um, the issue of sacrifice, he sacrificed before Samuel came. Um, oh, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this is a big one. And then Samuel takes the sword and kills Agag, if I remember, right, himself. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hacks like, him to pieces. Yeah. And yeah. And basically, the lesson of the story is that's what you should have done, Saul. Like, this is what you should have done. You should have hacked this guy to pieces, but you <clears> didn't. <throat> and it constituted a great sin against the Lord. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. Adam, can you understand why 
some of these episodes kind of bother people. Like, what do you think, man? Yo, well, I, I mean, I think the so let's let's talk about the Shema, right? So here, you, I think in the New Testament, we we see Jesus constantly say, "He that has ears to hear, let him hear." And I, I think that's he's saying Shema. And in Israelite society, I think that was the same the same as if I were to say to you, "Hey, Dennis, I'm going to tell you something that's really important and." I need to see that not not only are you listening to me, but you also need to obey and do what I've told you to do. And so I think that's 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 where I think that's just how the Lord is. He's like, hey, yeah. hey, you you need to you need to do as I'm telling you to do. That's that's what's required here. Just just listen. Don't complicate it and do it. And so I, I think it's really hard for us to process in today's day and age where we have so many options to make so many different choices that could result in so many different consequences to see such a stout black and white contrast of, I told you to do this. And because you didn't do this, I'm going to show you how it should be done. And it should be done in an extreme manner, right? Something that we're not used to seeing. So, um, yeah, I can understand how it would, you know, take a lot of people off guard that don't have a long history of being estab- uh, established in the faith or biblical principles or having a lot of time being spent in reading and believing the word of God. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that's what I have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you in the sense that um, Saul disobeyed the Lord. Right, the Lord commanded him to do this thing. He did not do it. Yeah, I I think that's sin. But now the question is, why would God, who loves these people, right? Like that's our theology, right? That God loves everyone in the world, right? He so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son, that whosoever should believe in Him would not die, right, but have eternal life. So God loves these Amalekites, right? He loves these Hittites and Amorites and Canaanites. And yet he's ordering Saul and Joshua to kill all of them. Kill them all. Don't leave any that are alive. So the implication is that we're talking women, we're talking children, right? Like, yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So how can that be good? How can that be loving? Yeah, I think you go, you can... (laughs) I don't know if we're going to get off on a tangent here, but you could, you can almost go back to what you said and and make a pretty strong argument that no, God doesn't love everybody in that capacity. He loves those that respond to his love. And there is a good argument that you could say, God does not have a good plan for your life until you step into a relationship of agreement with him. And that looks like obedience. And so, I, I mean, you could almost you you can you can see i think throughout scripture that that god makes a clear distinction on who he favors and on who he's allowing to know him and it's not these guys for whatever reason for whatever i don't know maybe um maybe it sounds presumptuous but for whatever disobedience or sin or idolatry they were guilty of in the past or guilty of um you know sin against israel I, I think that can that can be found and that argument can be made. Yeah, I, I think you're you're hitting on one important point here. Okay. And I think there's because there's a number of important things I think we gotta talk about. But I think you're hitting pretty strongly on one of them, which is that you know, when we talk about God being loving today, I think we, we have to be careful to use the biblical definition of love. Right? The biblical definition of love. Um, includes the fact that God is also judging people, right? He loves them, and He also judges them. So we can't we can't import a definition of love into the Bible that's not consistent with the Bible's own standards of love, right? And I think what you're getting at is that there are some pretty significant differences in the way that we talk about people being loving today, or more specifically, when we talk about God being loving today. Right. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you'll hear this stuff at, at churches all the time about, you know, God 
I, I I don't know if you've ever heard any of this stuff, but like, you know, God loves you so much. He's thinking about you all the time. <laughs> right. If, if maybe, if, I, I if, if it was just <laughs> you, if like Jesus died and it was just for you, he would have done it. I don't know if you ever heard that one. Yes, I have heard that. I have heard that many times. Yeah. Um, and you know, what's a, what's another good one? You know, um, there's, there's no end to his love, right? Like there's a song he used to sing, uh, Phil Wickham song, one of his early ones talks about, um, your love knows no bounds, right? Mm -hmm. It's like boundless or like reckless love is, is a a very popular song these days, right? I like like, reckless love. Yeah. It's a great song by Corey Asbury or Corey uh, Asbury or something. One of those guys. Yeah. Yeah. I like that song too. Um, but there are some lyrics in that song that I'm like, uh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> right. Before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. Yep. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and the whole idea there is I didn't do anything to pursue you. I, you know, but you were pursuing me. Right. That's kind of the spirit of the song. And then, you know, it talks about there's no shadow you won't light up mountain you won't climb you won't up climb up coming mm-hmm. after me there's no mm-hmm. wall you won't kick down no lie you won't tear down coming after me i don't think this is theologically correct i i agree with the spirit of the song the spirit of the song is that god is actually pursuing us right like i think that's true i think that's true there's a sense in which god is pursuing us and a lot of times we don't realize that we feel like we're trying so hard to pursue god and like he's so distant when in fact a lot of times it's actually god pursuing us you know that's the reason why we feel these desires to follow him and all this kind of stuff so i think there is truth in this song but i think the danger for a lot of you know poets and musicians and artists in general is i think it can feel this way it feels like god's pursuing me like crazy and so we can say things that are not really technically correct and that's what i'm getting at here like i don't know man well there's, you know, there's yeah, no so mountain you won't climb up coming after me. right right so listen so <laughs> yeah I, I, so so another way so another way to put what you're saying mm-hmm. is if you look at if you look at the story of the prodigal son right the guy he gets the money he's all right i'm out of here i'm gonna go do my thing he goes and he does it and where is the father in all of this? Is the father over there with the whip, with the megaphone? Hey, you know, I can see what you're doing. It's over for you. You know, like, is he in yeah. that? Is he in? No, he's nowhere around there, man. He's back home. He's back yeah. home. And he doesn't He doesn't actually take off and, and have any sort of response to the son until the son makes a decision to go back and ask for forgiveness directly. And then in that moment, then you can see, okay, there's a collision course here with mercy and love and restoration. And wow, that's wonderful. But you don't see the Lord, you know, across the sea for that guy. You don't, right. You right. don't, but what you do see, but what you do see just to have a good time with the discussion here is you do see Jesus cross a sea to go get a hold of a dude that was in chains and shackles and demon possessed. So, okay. You're talking about I the, mean, the demoniac, the dude who's like yes. possessed by the Legion. Yes. And then once he frees him, the guy's like, Hey, I will follow you, please. Can I follow you? And the Lord says, no, go. You're not going to follow me. Go back and be an evangelist to the town and your family. Yeah. I think, I think that's one way to understand it. Um, I get what you're getting at. Right. I get what you're getting at, which is we do see some aspect of the Lord pursuing people. Right. Yes. Clearly. We do. Like, I think if I had to guess the Reckless Love song, what's probably going on in in Corey Asbury's mind is he's probably thinking of the prodigal, um, not the prodigal son, but the prodigal sheep, right? The lost sheep. Right. There's a sheep who's lost, and you have 99 who are in the pen. And he's the going shepherd's going to gonna go get yeah. the lost sheep, right? Yeah, he's going and, to get it. And I think that's part what he's thinking of here, right? The shepherd is like climbing every mountain, you know what I mean, to get this one lost sheep, you know? Right. Um, and yeah, that there's something beautiful about that. That's a real thing where God really does pursue us. But I just think 
we also need to understand that there are many times where the Lord does not pursue us or stops pursuing us, right? Like that's a real thing too. And it's not in every case that he pursues us, right? Like there's so many stories of, you know, um, like blind Bartimaeus. He's crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. And he's like screaming, you know, and the other people are telling him, hey, quiet down, quiet down, right? And he's like, no, and he keeps yelling all the more, right? Question, what if he didn't yell? What if he didn't? What if he didn't yell? Yeah. Like, there's. I think it's likely he would not have gotten healed, right? Or the woman who has the issue of blood, right? She's bleeding for twelve years, and she's got to fight her way through the crowd, right? And she touches the hem of Jesus' robe and then gets healed. Or the man who is paralyzed and his friends have to dig up, you know, break a hole in the roof and lower him through the roof. There's all these stories about how people went to extraordinary lengths because of their faith right to get blessing from the lord in those cases it's the people's faith and the lord says that many times your faith has made you well your faith has healed you right like he is acknowledging that their faith is the thing that caused them to receive this blessing okay and um now i know that there's a whole argument you could say well it was the spirit of god pursuing them you know which gave them that desire to then do those extraordinary things and i do think there is an argument there um, I all that I'm getting at is I just think it's a mistake when we portray God as being far more loving than he is holy or severe, okay, or strict. And because I think a, a healthy perspective of the Lord is that he's both of those things, right? And I think Paul says that in Romans 10-ish around there, right? Behold, therefore, the love or the kindness and the severity of God, right? Behold the love and the kindness, or excuse me, the kindness and the severity of God. And it's like, we need to emphasize both of those things. And um, when we're talking about these Old Testament judgments, yeah, man, we're talking a lot about the severity aspect. And that's a real aspect. Um, And I think that there's a huge problem when we see the judgments of the Lord, and then we're like, that does not seem consistent with a loving God. Do you know what I mean because well, well yeah because because I think a lot of times people and you know I'm I'm included too I'm I'm sure occasionally is we mistake love and affirmation love for affirmation and they're not the same thing and especially today's in today's culture if you don't affirm someone or something and whatever it is that they're seeking affirmation or attention in then the conclusion very quickly is, well, you hate me or you are my enemy. And that's not necessarily the case. For sure. For sure. Yeah, Yeah, I hear you. I just think it's important to emphasize both. And I think a lot of the, just being real, a lot of the people that deconstruct on this point, I think a big one is this, like understanding God's love and his severity and finding a holistic picture of God that includes both of those things. Right. And and I think the tendency these days is that most churches today are going to strongly overemphasize the love of God. At least when, at least in California, most of the churches that I worked at, you know, that I was at. Now I know your story is not that right. Like you were at a church where they really overemphasize the severity of God, which definitely happens. Right. Okay, so I, it can, you can you can go out of balance. I think on either side here, right? You sure can. I mean, you can. It's kind of like, uh, so, you know, the fear of the Lord, right? You want to have a healthy fear of the Lord. What's the fear of the Lord? That's the beginning of wisdom, and that's to depart from evil, right? Mm-hmm. So to, to make a conscious choice that you're, gonna, you're not going to participate in the works of the flesh that are outlined in Galatians and, you know, other areas of the, in the gospel. Um, so, yeah, man, I think that, that's, like, that's, the, that's the, the starting point there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think that's kind of point number one. Point number one is God is not as loving as he is sometimes made out to be. And to be clear, I'm I'm using those in, you know, a slang kind of sense, right? I think he's far more loving um, th- than we can recognize. But we should understand that that love also includes his judgment, okay? And I think this is where there's mass confusion 
in the body of Christ, and there's mass confusion in lots of Christians on this issue. All right, and I think when we're talking about you know the Canaanite genocide, what we have to understand is you know when we think about fairness, like if you were the general in a war, you wouldn't tell your troops, "Hey, kill everyone," right? Like kill the women, kill the children, kill the animals, kill them all, right? Like that's not something that any of us would expect a human general to do like that's not right that's not just that's not righteous okay Mm -hmm. but that's also not judgment does that make sense like the the difference in this circumstance is that this is not just the israelites going to war with some people group this is god is utilizing the nation of israel in kind of a special place to be the arm of his judgment against these peoples, right? So, I mean, this is something of a special circumstance, okay? Um, and the idea there is that in the same way that the flood or an earthquake or a famine or a disease, it kills all those same things, right? It kills the animals, it kills um, the women and the children, It should be understood in that kind of way, not as like a typical type of warfare type of situation. This is not a prescription for how we should engage war or how God wants us to engage in warfare. This is an act of divine judgment, right? And yes, that includes women, children, all of that. So let's let's talk about that for a second. Why? Why does God judge entire people groups? Like that that seems somewhat indiscriminate, right? Like if Adam, if I if I was like, if I was a judge, and I'm like, okay, there's all this evil, I'm gonna punish the evildoers, the ones who are doing it, right? They're the ones who deserve to get punished. I wouldn't just indiscriminately wipe out the entire people group, would I? How is how is that good or fair or just? Well, I think where help me help me with where this uh, this is in the in the in the text where. The, I think the Lord is describing himself or somebody's describing the Lord and he, he says how he's compassionate and faithful, um, uh, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on, do you know where that's at? Yeah. Yeah. That's, okay, so, um, so around, go ahead. Good. Can you, can you take, tell me where that's at? Can you take me, take me to that passage? Cause I think that's going to be my answer. Okay. Um, well, let me let me just describe the passage you're talking about. So this is a, a very oft-quoted passage, right? The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, right? right. That part gets quoted all the time, right? I hear right. people quote that verse, part of the verse. But the next verse is... Where I'm going is the next stuff. The next stuff yeah. is where I'm going. Yeah. Right. The next verse is that he, sh- he um, shows favor on those who obey him or love him unto a thousand generations, right? right? So he shows favor on their children, their children's children, right? There's that song that got really popular, um, The Blessing, yes. right? Yes. May his your favor be upon you for a thousand yeah, generations. Jones. I love that song. Yes. I it's love a that song. Phenomenal it's song. So good. But so good. they left out the second part of that verse, right? Yes, they he will. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Right? There we go. Yeah, Punishing right them to now. the third and fourth generation. There it is. Yeah. There it like, is. They, so, we never sing about that part. No, we don't. But <laughs> we don't. there it is. Yeah. We, just, we, la- we always about. leave those parts out of the songs, man. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that that, uh, that makes sense because that's, that's how, uh, that's how I, that's my answer. That's how I feel about that topic and subject. And I think it's clear. It's clear. You can see in that, in that passage, I don't know where, what, what, what is that? Where is that at? What passage is that? All right. looks like it's Exodus 34. Mm -hmm. And is that when uh, the Lord uh, passes before Moses while he's hid in the cleft of the rock? Is that what's going on? And he covers him with his hand. And that's what he says. The Lord says that about himself. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. It's the when the Lord passes in front of Moses, right? Yeah. So this is Exodus so, 34. Yeah. This is, and this is this is really good stuff right here, man. Yeah. 
I'm going to, I'm going to read the passage. It yeah, says he the, passed yes. in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not lead the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. And and that but sentiment can... is repeated a couple times in different parts of the in different parts of the Bible. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think I I think there's actually something pretty I could be wrong, but I I, I remember remember watching uh Tim Mackey do a breakdown of that particular passage and he spent some time on the part where the Lord is talking about um to the third and fourth generation. And I, I don't exactly, I can't articulate it, but he was basically saying, I think something along the lines of how there's judgment in this passage, but there's also extreme mercy. And mm -hmm. I think it just, it just corresponds with what you're saying is how, you know, there is the love of God is incredible. It's undescribable, but it also, there's also a holiness and a reverence and a judgment that, that goes along with it. And I, you know, I think that's just very clear. Like the, the, the Bible can, it clearly shows those distinctions. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think yeah. you're hitting on what is another really important point here. And that's the idea of corporate responsibility, corporate responsibility. So the reason why I think God judges people groups is because there's a sense in which we have a corporate responsibility for some of the stuff that happens. And that means that we have the power to influence each other, right? So if sin abounds in a culture, it's because we have allowed it to happen as a group, as a nation, mm -hmm. something like that, okay? Now, it's not total. It's not that you know everyone is exactly as guilty as everybody else, right? But I think this is exactly what Jesus is getting at actually in the Sermon on the Mount where he tells his disciples that you are the light of the world, right? You are the salt and the light. And then, but then he says, what happens if the salt loses its saltiness? And he says, it's fit only to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And that language of being trampled underfoot, that is absolutely judgment language speaking. It's speaking of armies, being allowed to come in and trample your people, right? And the idea there is if his followers cease to effectively impart righteousness to their people, then it's right that they share in the judgment that comes on their people. Okay? That's intense. Wow. Yeah, I think that's the basic idea here. And so when the scriptures are talking about judging nations. See, this is something that is is really not well understood in the church. Um, no, it's not at all. God, there's man. very little teaching on on understanding corporate judgment or the fact that it still happens today, right? I remember reading um, Frank Barlam, if you know who he is. Um, he was very instrumental in the Azusa Street revivals. And um, he was writing prior to the Azusa Street revivals, there was a huge earthquake um, that happened, I believe, in San Francisco. And... Um, you know, he talked about how that Sunday after the earthquake, every pastor was saying how it had nothing to do with God, right? That the earthquake had nothing to do with God. It was not judgment from God, all this kind of stuff. And um, and this was, you know, gr grievous to him because the earthquake he was convinced was from God, that it was a warning, right? That it was, a, it was an act of discipline. And yet all the pastors were preaching the opposite, right? And whatever effect the earthquake could have had to sober the people and to cause them to be humbled and to repent, that effect was not happening because the leaders in the church were preaching them the way that they were preaching. And to be honest, that's that same thing is exactly what goes on today in a lot mm -hmm. of churches, right? Like that God has nothing to do with earthquakes, nothing to do, like he doesn't judge like that anymore. There's a lot of teaching where, you know, like, there, that was the age of the law, right? The Old Testament is the age of the law, and now we're in the age of grace, and Jesus' blood has now paid for all of that. So none of the famine and earthquakes, any of that is from the Lord today. Now, I understand, Adam, that probably was not the kind of church you were at. You guys probably talked about judgment a good amount, because you do get that in just being real. Some of the churches that get really legalistic, they tend to lean really heavily on the more judgment side. Um, 
But I think there's a healthy way that we can understand this, right? In that judgment is a real thing that continues to happen today. I think earthquakes, famines, all these kinds of things, droughts, which we've been experiencing a lot of in um, America in the past you know, couple decades, I think all these are types of judgments, right? Now, my understanding is really the vast majority of judgments are not intended to destroy people, but to warn a people, right? In the mm-hmm. same way that when I judge my children, I'm not <clears throat> trying to destroy them. I'm trying to teach them, right? Like I'm disciplined, I'm spanking them. I think that's the best way to understand the vast majority of judgments against nations like earthquakes and famines. The purpose is not to destroy them. It's to wake them up. It's to humble them, right? So that they come to their senses and fix the stuff that they need to fix, something like that. And then if I had to put a number on it, maybe like 20%, 20% of the judgments are intended to to destroy, right? And that's the type that we see in the flood, in you know the Canaanite invasion, right? These really offensive judgments that people are really bothered by in the Old Testament, these are the destruction judgments. And I would just simply say, I think that still happens, right? When we look you know, um, at massive war, it we've. I think these are types of of judgments that are very severe. You know, maybe not meeting the, um, you know, it, maybe not total destruction in many cases, but in many cases, it's a severe judgment. Like what happened to Germany after World War II? I think that was a severe judgment. What happened, you know, um, to Japan? What happened to even the Jewish people? You know, during the Holocaust, I believe that that is a type of judgment. You know, from the Lord, and to be clear, it doesn't—it doesn't mean God's favor and love. It does not rest on Israel. I believe it does, right? Like I think Paul's pretty explicit about that in Romans eleven. He talks about Israel is beloved because of the patriarchs, and that's that principle that we just talked about—that He shows favor to a thousand generations. So, because of the favor that was on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He shows favor to the nation of Israel for a thousand generations, and yet He still disciplines them, and sometimes very harshly. Right. Yeah, very harshly, very harshly. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and yet he still loves them, which is significant mm. here, right? So the the worst kind of judgment is destruction of a people group. Okay. Now I think we should clarify at this point, even though God commanded in some of these places, you should not leave anything breathing, right? Do not leave anything alive in these cities and stuff like that. Um, the general judgment was actually not to annihilate. That, that generally speaking, these peoples were not annihilated. We see them in future times in you know in the biblical story, but they were to be driven out of the land. Okay, I think that's a better way to understand that they were to be driven out of the land. There are some passages that speak about that fairly explicitly. I grabbed one here from Exodus twenty three twenty seven. It says, "I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way." But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. So little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. So what we see is that it's not like Joshua came in and just annihilated every single people group in the land. Okay, right. he did. He did kill a lot. Okay, <clears throat> but it seems like there was more to drive them out of the land meaning it wasn't utter destruction in the same way that the Holocaust was not utter destruction of the Jews, even though it was a severe, you know, it was a a severe catastrophe. And in the same way that, you know, world war two decimated so many Germans, so many Russians, right. Over, you know, Chinese, over a hundred million Chinese died, you know, in the aftermath of world war two, the communist revolution, the great leap forward, these are severe judgments, but they didn't wipe out the people groups. Okay. And I think, you know, that that is actually generally what happened um, in a lot of these types of situations. Now, I think the flood is a little bit different, which we can get into in a second. But I think we should understand that these types of judgments, um, God, I think, continues to do them. And, you know, as as horrible as this might sound, uh, this is not as horrible as World War II was. Like, World War II was far more horrible you know, in a lot of ways than this type of judgment. And and we should understand that this type of warfare that was happening in the Canaanite invasion, I mean, man, ancient history is full of this type of warfare. In many cases, it's much, much worse. And we should understand mm-hmm. that God, you know, him being sovereign is that he is the one who raises up nations and tears them down, right? That's the whole idea of the sovereignty of God, that he rules supreme over the nations. So we should understand 
that most of the times when you have an invading army taking over another nation or something like that, that is a type of judgment. Okay, generally speaking, that that is a type of judgment, and that continues to happen today. Yeah, I don't. Um, I don't. It, the I don't see anywhere in the New Testament or the Old Testament where those judgments end. If anything, they just continually increase. Yeah, for sure. Right. I mean, like, can you can you show me something in the Bible that says that that's going to end? These be beyond um, the ending in Revelation. And that's that's when it seems like it ends. But up until that point, it seems like it just drastically gets worse. For sure. I mean, when we're talking about like the flood, like the flood is the worst judgment that's ever happened to the earth. Well, <clears throat> I think the Bible is pretty explicit that the first destruction of the earth was by water and the second will be by fire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I think it's pretty explicit that there is still going to be incredible judgment to come. And there's going to be it's going to be pretty bad right so yeah I, I think simply speaking when we're talking about this all of this is under the banner of understanding that the god of the bible yes judges severely now let's talk about is that a good thing is that a bad thing because you know like yeah imagine you're deconstructing faith or you're just trying to you know because i think you and i adam we trust the bible right we trust god right even if we can't understand how something is good on on the face of it we go well if the lord commanded it then it must be good right there's an aspect of trust that we have what i want to do now is let's try and you know is this really good though like why would this be good why would it be good to destroy these nations why would it be good to send a worldwide flood that wipes out everyone except for eight people on the ark how can that be mm. good you know i think it, it just comes down to um i the i don't know but one one idea that i have would be intention and i i guess you know in the text it clearly says that it grieved the lord that he had made man you know but but noah finds noah noah finds favor in his eyes for whatever reason um <clears throat> real quickly without going too in depth in it is there a reason is there is there an apparent reason like a, a good solid simple understandable reason or is it just kind of like hey this happened and we don't really know why kind of similar to where um uh, enoch we don't really know why. Like he pleases, he pleases the Lord, and the Lord takes him. But there's not a lot of information around why, or how, what led up to that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, there's arguments. That's what we have. Okay. Right. So there are a couple arguments um, that I, I'm going to bring up. Okay. But in all this, it I don't I don't know of anything in Scripture that's like super explicit. This is exactly why. This is exactly why it's good. You know, I could just quote this Bible verse and we're done. We don't even have this conversation, right? right. I don't know of anything like that. Um, right. But I do think there are a number of implications in the scripture for which we can draw credible arguments. Now, I don't know if these arguments are going to be 100% compelling, but I think there are real arguments that we could see. Okay. So let me give mm -hmm. a, let me give a couple. Okay. Because there's two big ones that stand out to me. All right. Mm -hmm. Number one is the argument of the Nephilim. Okay, so I don't know how familiar you are with the whole Nephilim story. Okay, this is going back to Genesis around five, I think, where there's this really weird story about how the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they yeah, came Nimrod. down, yeah, yeah, and they they slept with them and had children with them, and their children um, became great. Um, I forget the way the Bible explicitly puts it. But they become great men who, you know, ruled for a period of time. You know, that, that's not a good paraphrase. Yeah. <laughs> Let me look at the passage. There's not many I verses on this. I think it's men of renown. In, yeah, in something like that is what it's is what it says. It's men of who were men of renown, and I think Nimrod was one of them, and he hunted men or humanity. Um, but yeah, I'm, I know what you're talking about. I have a general understanding of what the nephilim are yes and it's so amazing it's so fascinating it's just it's such a cool topic and topic yes. to get on 
So sorry, this is Genesis six, and um, and it says I'm just going to read the relevant section. It's only a handful of verses. And the Lord said, "My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh; his days shall be numbered 120 years." And there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then he was grieved in his heart, and he and that and then it goes into the flood story. So, yeah, what I'm getting at here is that the flood is is tied in with the story of the Nephilim. Like they're in the same chapter here in in chapter six, and I think what the Bible's doing is it's giving us a hint of something that it, is very important to why God destroyed the earth. All right, now the Bible doesn't give us a lot. Books like First Enoch which is a non-canonical book that was highly regarded in the first century church. And in fact, it's quoted twice in the New Testament, the book of Jude and Peter quotes um, first Enoch in his letters. And first Enoch is all about this Nephilim incident. Okay. It goes into detail about the Nephilim and what happened and the judgment and all of that kind of stuff. And my only point is, um, that it's the theory of several theologians and scholars that really the purpose of the flood was to wipe out what had happened because of this incident of rebellion. So this is like a huge rebellion. Okay. This is a huge rebellion where these angels, these spiritual beings commit this rebellion against the Lord by, you know, sleeping with human women, having these children. Now, you know, incidentally, I think this is where we get some of the Greek mythology about like Prometheus, for example, right? Prometheus, a god, a, a titan, he comes and he teaches men fire, right? And this is where I think we get a lot of the Greek mythology about Hercules, about these demigods, these half-human, half-gods. Um, I think a lot of this is in mythology because there's some reality to that, right? I think this is an overlap with what the what the Bible calls the this incident of the Nephilim, okay? Um, but the idea is that this huge rebellion of these angelic beings caused this incredible evil to come upon the earth. And that's why it required a really drastic solution, which was essentially the, you know, the wiping out of all life on the earth, something like that. Okay. Right. So, so the only reason I I bring this up is because, you know, the Bible is a supernatural book. It assumes a supernatural perspective. It assumes these angelic beings, you know, demigods, this type of thing. And it's in that context that we have a supernatural flood. Okay. So um, I think, you know, if we're going to be honest with the text of scripture, well, then we have to be honest with its own internal logic. Okay. And what, what I'm getting at is, you know, if you're reading Lord of the Rings or something like that, you know, there's this whole magic world and there's orcs. Like, was it, was it righteous for um, Aragorn? to slaughter hordes of poor orcs, you know, like, man, what if the orcs, you know, could have been rehabilitated? What if there were good orcs? Like, what if some of the orcs were being forced to fight, you know? Sorry if you're not a Lord of the Rings nerd like I am, right? But No, I do. I am. You're okay. Okay, yeah. yeah. All that I'm getting at here is that in this, you know, supernatural world, what we understand is these orcs are like, in some way, like pure evil. <laughs> right, like they're pure evil, right? So, look at them. Look yeah. At them. So we don't generally have a problem <laughs> with like Aragorn slaughtering orcs. You know, we don't generally go, wait a second. Like, what about the good orcs? And you know, like we understand that according to the supernatural world, these orcs are just evil beings. And it's like, okay, well, it 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 doesn't mean he's an evil king, right? He's still a righteous king. And I I simply bring up that you know analogy because I think there's some parallels here where if we're going to accept you know the biblical story as a story that it has these supernatural beings of evil and some of the stuff that they're doing constitutes a great rebellion against the Lord. I think that there is some, you know, there's some way that we have to expect that the solutions that God uses are not just for people. All right. And what I'm getting at here is that the Bible actually paints a much larger picture about this issue. And what the, the picture that it paints is that there are these supernatural beings, these princes in the heavenly realms that are far more culpable, far more guilty than most humans. And what it's getting at 
is that humans, I think the way the Bible presents humans are kind of like dumb slaves, right? Humans are kind of dumb slaves. And then you have these spiritual beings that are manipulating them and using them. And so there's a sense in which God tends to be much more merciful with humans because they don't know what the heck is actually going on, right? Than he is with these these rebellious angels, something like that, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, we're getting into a lot of like more speculative theology, but that's the point when we're talking about these judgments, this stuff I think is a- is actually part of the the larger picture and we can only see glimpses of it. And so it's hard when we're just talking a human point of view because it's like, is it really fair for God to destroy all people? And th- there's a sense in which the people got caught up in this kind of heavenly rebellion, right? And this, you know... Th- to play off this, it's also one of the theories is that what we see after the flood is the descendants of Anak, the sons of Anak, who are actually have Nephilim, but they're giants, right? Like Goliath. And they're in the land of Canaan. And so one of the theories is that the reason why Joshua was commanded to wipe out these regions is because they still had some of this Nephilim blood in these regions. And what you actually see is that David and his mighty men are the ones who finally wipe they out finally all the sins of Anak. Yeah, right. Yeah, Moses Moses fights Og and then Joshua I think fights another couple of them and yeah, they're they're around for a while. Yeah. So I I just think this is kind of an interesting kind of side plot but I don't you know it's hard because the scriptures are only giving us glimpses of this thing. But my point, my only point bringing this up is that we tend to try and judge things from our human perspective, and we're largely ignorant of the spiritual realm that the Bible is insisting is actually the more important part of the story, right? This is actually the real story that's going on in the spiritual realm amongst these heavenly princes and their rebellion, and we're part of that story, but we're largely ignorant of all that stuff that's going on. We only get little glimpses of it in the Bible. And so I just bring that up because when we're talking about the judgments of the Lord, we have to understand there's a lot here that we're not seeing, that we don't fully understand, and we just have glimpses of it, if that makes sense. Okay? So I would say the, the Nephilim you know, part of the explanation I think is an important part of it that's hard to get a grip on exactly how important it is to all of these questions of judgment. Okay? I'm not sure how important that is, but I do feel like it's an important part of all of these Old Testament judgments, especially these really harsh ones against these particular people groups. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So that's kind of, you know, argument number one. All right. Argument number one. Now, argument number two is I think something that you hinted at a little bit earlier, and that's the idea that it's actually better to destroy large segments of a people group than it is to allow the sin to continue on and to spread to other peoples and to subsequent generations. Okay. Right. And I think this is really what's at the heart of a lot of this, these types of judgments is that it's better to put an end to it. Right. And even though it's seems more terrible, but it's actually better in the long run. And I think, I think all of us can kind of understand that, right? Like there's a reason we went to war with Nazi Germany, right? There's a reason why we went to war. Now, we went to war very reluctantly, okay? Like America, we we were trying hard to stay out of that war until we were attacked by the Japanese. And then we're like, oh, I guess we're in this thing, you know? But what we were doing is we were trying to help the allies as much as possible. We were sending <clears throat> all sorts of equipment um, to the British. And that's because we had a sense that the British were on the right side of this conflict, Okay, and the British were there because they understood that Hitler was not going to stop until he conquered huge swaths of Europe. Right. And so they're like, we've got to put an end to this. We've got to stop this. Right. And that's why France and England went to war. So it's a huge part of the reason. And then once we were in war and especially towards the end of the war, then we started to see, wow. It's a very good thing we went to war. Why? Because we started to discover all the concentration camps. Right, we started to discover what Hitler was doing in annihilating six million Jews and undesirables and gypsies and all these types of people in these concentration camps. And I, at that time, we we're like, "Thank God, 
we were involved in this war. Like, thank God that we went to war. Like, that was a righteous thing to do. Why? Because if we had not gone to war, then Hitler would have conquered huge swaths of Europe, would have passed down his ideology to subsequent generations. We're talking generations, potentially, of tyranny, generations of oppression, okay? And that's because these ideologies were so evil that we understand we've got to fight against it and put an end to it, even if we're killing many people. And there's so many, you know, um, there's so much collateral damage. So many innocent civilians were killed in the course of us, you know, fighting in World War II. Entire cities were destroyed and firebombed and things like this. And um, these are not things that we want to happen, but we understand are somewhat inevitable and and worth it. Like it's worth it. Even if we're going to kill some civilians, it's worth it to put an end to this evil, lest it perpetuate beyond, you know, this small era in 1930s Germany. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. And I think that rationale is the exact same reason why God judges nations. Okay, I think it's the exact same reason. Like, it actually talks about how, you know, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. So the, the idea being that God tries to exalt righteous nations so that righteousness will proliferate on the earth. He wants the righteous to be stronger. He wants the righteous to rule so that because if the unrighteous rule, then what happens is you have tons of suffering and oppression and evil. And to be clear, I don't think any nation does it perfectly. But I think generally speaking, if if a people gets, you know, their sin gets out of control, God judges them. All right. And I think in large part, that's what we should understand many wars being about. Okay. The judgment of God trying to put an end or a stop to sin. And yes, it involves killing people but the but the the idea then is that people nations are culpable when sin starts to abound in their nation right when sin starts to abound in their nation the people of the nation are somewhat corporately responsible for that happening because we could have fought against it and i think that's the same argument that i try and make today like it like as christians i don't think we can just be silent on issues of evil like if we're silent and we go oh you know like we can't control them where that's not our job. Our job is just to tell them about God's love, but it's not to vociferously <clears throat> argue against sinful action. Like, we don't think that's part of our job. I think what we're doing is we're allowing sin to abound in our nation, which means that we will share with the judgment, right? If God determines that, man, the sin has gotten way too, way too crazy in this nation. I don't know. What do you think about all that, Adam? Well, I mean, I think you, you're start. we're, we've we've seen the hijacking of our education system our public education system and we're paying for the indoctrination and we're we're paying for our kids to learn about the religion of the state that's what's going on right now so um yeah i I mean I, i i think it's i think the that approach that you described of we just need to tell people about the love of god that 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 doesn't work what also doesn't work is affirming things that god doesn't affirm and what also doesn't work is blaming other people for your mistakes or shortcomings so i i really think we need to see um we need to see a lot more churches and people uh kind of ramp that conversation up and those talking points up and uh might make people feel uncomfortable, but that that's a that's a good thing, you know. I think it, I think that that creates a a time of processing and you know reflection, and it's good. It's a it's a good it's a good thing to do. There's so many so many families, so many you know twenty something, twenty one, twenty two, twenty three year old couples with new babies, and it's it's like you you can't. It's not the same world it was 15, 20 years ago where there were, you know, there, there was, there was some bias, but not as much as there is now on the news and in the education system and in the, in the government. And you just, it's a shame, man. It's, it's, it's really a shame. So yeah, I just, I just wanted to pair at that point that you made. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I think what we do in church is what we, we, tend to be united in this idea that what Christians need to do is preach the gospel, okay? And by the gospel, what they mean is 
the good news that Jesus died for your sins, and if you put your faith in him, that your sins will be forgiven and you can live forever. Okay? That is kind of like the the popular gospel. And I think almost all churches are united, like, hey, this is what we need to do. We need to get our people preaching the gospel. Go out and preach the gospel. And I do think that's true, but I think there's some there's some ways in which this is not exactly right. Okay. And what I'm getting at is this. The the gospel, as I understand it, is the good news that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. All right. That is, I think, the heart of the gospel. And then an important aspect of that is that if we put our faith in him, give him our trusting loyalty, our allegiance, then he promises he will raise us from the dead. Okay. I think that's an important part of it. But the heart of the gospel is the truth that he is Lord of heaven and earth. And the idea here is that we're warning people that all men owe him their allegiance. And this idea that now I'm I'm arguing, I'm trying to convince people to obey Jesus, to make him Lord of their life. All right. And the, the idea here is that I think Christians don't understand how important it is to champion not just the fact that Jesus is Lord, but his commands are to be obeyed. Yeah, it's and that's see, that's the that's such a challenge today because um so many, so many at least out here in San Diego anyway, because so many people have are are just dead set on their own way. And in in my experience in sharing and sharing the gospel, it it's very emotionally taxing. Because sure. you, you're, you're hoping for, you know, you're hoping, you're hoping to close the deal, right? You're really hoping that you, you come across somebody that is interested and that is agreeable and that is sincere and, you know, that will maybe accept the church invitation. Um, maybe that's, you know, a coworker or a family member or somebody that you see throughout the week on a consistent basis. But it can get it can get uh, challenging because you know if you go do that a couple of times and you put yourself out there and you know people shut you down, then it, it's easy to take that personally and get discouraged. You know, for sure. Yeah, of course. Have you ever? Have, yeah, have you ever? You know what I'm talking about that in that regard? Have you ever experienced that? Oh yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think what what I'm getting at, um, you know, with all this talk about the gospel is that what we've done is we have said, hey, we've got to sell people, uh, you know, it, like make a sales pitch, and they got to accept Jesus. And like we train people to do contact evangelism, which is something like a five to 15 minute conversation to try and convince somebody to put their faith in Jesus and give their lives, you know, and that's a really difficult proposition. Okay. Do you think that's, do you think that's effective? Do you think that's, do you think that works? Do you think that's something that the Lord looks at and says, yeah, I would like that yeah. to continue to go on because of how great it is? Is that what you <laughs> Yeah, it's I don't a great think question. So. I think generally I speaking, I so. um, studies have, have shown that really something like only like 10% of Christians are effective in that type of evangelism. And right. that generally speaking, the only the only the type of evangelism that bears long-term fruit is is not contact evangelism but friendship evangelism meaning right. pe- people need friendships um because even those that make a decision oftentimes they don't get plugged in into the church and stay you know for the rest of their lives that's generally not what happens even when people go to crusades and make decisions for Christ and stuff like that a lot of those decisions are only temporary. The really, the really important thing is they have to make friendships with other believers and be in community with them and walk with them, right? That's really right. the only type of effective evangelism. But all, all that I'm getting at and bringing up all of this is that generally speaking, no, I don't think it's super effective. Um, I don't think that's the only thing that preaching the gospel means. I'll simply put it like that, okay? I think when we are engaged in public discussion concerning the commands of Jesus and making arguments about why they're good and righteous and just, and we are convincing our people, our nation, to obey his commands, I think that is there's an also a sense in which that is a type of proclamation of a gospel. Now, maybe it's not an ex- explicit type of Jesus is the source of this. You have to put your faith in him. But what I'm getting at here is that there are a lot of people that actually are engaged in that debate 
but it's happening more in like the political realm, right? Mm. It's happening more in the political realm. So you have guys, you know, like let's say Matt Walsh. Matt Walsh is a Catholic, and you know, one of the things he's really on these days is trying to um, destroy the ideology of transgenderism, right? So he made a movie, right? Like, what is a woman? I don't know if you've you've seen that one. Yeah, I have. It's great. Yeah, I I think that there's an aspect of preaching the gospel there. Okay, now to be clear, it it's definitely not like an explicit gospel, but I think when we defend the commands of the Lord, when we defend the scriptures, that this is a type of preaching the gospel that is essential, right? That that's part of our job as believers is to engage in that public dialogue so that we're influencing our nation with righteousness, okay? And um, I think it's a mistake when we turn off from that and we just go, oh, no, like that's not what we're supposed to do. Christians shouldn't be involved in any of that kind of stuff. We should just be, you know, telling people to follow Jesus and then otherwise just, you know, let let the lost be lost, something like that. I think that's a real misunderstanding, and I think it's because we don't understand many of these Old Testament judgments and how God judges nations and the role that his people are to play within their nations, right, of being salt and light. So I'll just simply say I, a lot of people on the conservative right that are in politics, that are speaking in the political realm, a lot of them are Christians. A lot of them are Christians and Jews, and they feel convicted to stand for these truths that they're convicted by a lot of them because of Scripture. So I I don't know. I think that there's there's something that is incredibly important and righteous about that that is generally not understood or appreciated, generally speaking, in the church. I'll simply say that. Mm, okay. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Well, Adam, is there anything else that you'd like to add on any of this stuff? Because obviously it's a lot of stuff that we hit to, hit on today. No, but just 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 for fun to just kind of kind of close it out on a, a, a fun note. Yep. What what do you think? happened to Jephthah's daughter? Was that a real burning or was she just never married and she lived just, uh, you know, uh, a solo woman for the rest of her life? So this is the story about the man who makes a vow, right? If, you know, God, if you make me victorious in this battle, then the first person that I meet, I will sacrifice to you on my way back. First thing, the first thing. Yeah. yeah, and the first thing that he he sees is his daughter. His right? daughter comes running out after his after he's victorious after his vow is made. Yep, and it doesn't tell you. So then the response is the response goes, he's like, "Oh my gosh, you got to be kidding me! You know what I vowed? You know what has to happen now?" And then she's she's like, she, it's almost like she's cool with it. She's like, "Okay, well, let me go get some girls." And I'm going to go into the mountains, and we're going to weep and wail for a little while, and then mm-hmm. I'll come back, and then we'll go through with it. But yep. you, you never are informed if, like, okay, did did she is she burned at the stake, or is she just, you know, handed over to the temple of the Lord, or whatever was going on at that point in history? Got it. Well, in humility, I have not seriously studied this question. I've definitely wondered about it as I read it. Um, so. I'd always want to go and seriously study something before I made like a definitive answer on that. But my understanding is that she was killed. Okay. My understanding is that she was killed. Yeah. (laughs) And that that was a very foolish thing for him to do. Okay. Yeah. Now, if, if I remember correctly, that's during the time of the judges, I assume. Right. I believe. Yes, I believe it was. And you know, you know what? That's uh, Mackie. He takes that stance too. Yeah. He, He, he says he, he, this guy, Jephthah, I think he had another religion going on on the side, and it was to sacrifice and burn people. And uh, that's what he did. Is, is his daughter came down from the hills and puffed, Yeah. Puffed. Well, the thing is, one of the puffed. refrains in the book of Judges, it says it again and again, it says everybody did what was right in their own sight. In their own eye, yeah. Right? Yeah, you're going to see that again and again in the book of Judges. And the whole idea there is it'll say, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own sight. Right? So right. the idea is that all the the tribes of Israel are kind of doing their own thing, and they're, a lot of them are doing it poorly. Meaning it's like the the law that was given to Moses, the commands of Moses were not well understood, you know, in the times of the judges amongst the people, and they were not enforced. And so everybody was doing was right in their own sight. And so the implication there is that 
you know, there were other gods that accepted worship in these ways, like human sacrifice, right? Like, right. like famously, like Moloch, that's how he was worshipped. And so there seems to be a sense in which Jephthah thought that God would want that, right? That God would appreciate this type of human sacrifice. And I, I, my understanding is that he was deceived on that, that God would not have wanted him to sacrifice his daughter, right? But that was something not that he all, right. made a decision to do, which was foolish. And it, and all of the, you know, the book of Judges, a lot of it is saying, like, this is why Israel really needed a king, right? And and this is why it was so much better when they eventually got a king, even though it, it does imply, you know, in, in, in the book of Samuel, that they should have waited a bit longer. But the whole idea was that Israel did need a king to help, you know, to help all the peoples follow the law of the Lord as it was intended to be given. Yeah, that's a, that's great, man. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah that, that was good. Thank you for having me on, and uh, I appreciate it, and peace, and God bless you. For sure, man. Thanks for, thanks for coming on, bro. Yep. See you.